And he made a statement that caused me to think, because it's a statement that many of us has, have echoed as well. And in the course of this conversation, he said, Dad, that's just not fair. And I said, well, Ryan, it, it may not be, but what exactly is it that you're talking about that's not fair? He said, it just doesn't seem fair to me that God would send people to hell because they've never heard about Jesus Christ. Because that doesn't seem fair to me. How about you? Does that seem fair to you? And he asked me that question, and it was one that, you know, you just wrestle with because, I, I mean, how many of you have wrestled with the same thing? Does that seem fair? I mean, how would you have answered this kid's question? Because it was a great question. And you see, kids can get to the matter, the heart of the matter, quicker than we can. Because they don't get all hung up in all the philosophy and all this and that and thinking all these things through. He just said, you know, just from what he could see, it just doesn't seem fair that God would send somebody to hell for eternity simply because they've never heard of Jesus Christ. And how would you answer the question? That's an excellent question. And it caused me to think about that because you just don't want to give a flippant answer. It has to be one that you know you can validate from God's perspective. What would you say? Does God send people to hell for eternity simply because they've never heard about Jesus Christ? And then the next question has to be, well, why do you believe that? Or why not? Yes or no? So the question that we're going to look at as we go through this, because I don't know about you, but it posed a tremendous dilemma for me. Because anyone who, number one, loves God and believes that God is good, believes that God is just, and also loves people as well, there's a tremendous dilemma here. Because how can you love God and people if that statement is true? And so as we look at this, the question that really comes to mind is that are all people who have never heard the gospel, have never heard about Jesus Christ, are all people who have never heard the gospel, are they lost for eternity? Are they or aren't they? Yes or no? What do you think? And if so, why not? And if they are, is that really fair? And so today we're going to continue where we left off last week as we addressed uh, an issue in our last session that had to do with um, being narrow-minded. For all of those who are outside of the, quote, Christian circle, for lack of a better way to say it, all those who are outside of ever coming to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, which means basically just... Um, asking for his forgiveness, knowing that he is the way to heaven. All of those people who are outside of that camp. Let's just say that, you know, here's a circle right here and there are people that are in it. And all the rest of the people that are outside of that circle will look at people in that circle and say, you know what, you're pretty narrow-minded because after all, how can you be so sure you're right and all the rest of the world be wrong? It comes up on a regular basis. I was talking to a friend this past week and he was sharing this particular point with some co-workers. And the argument that they had is a very simple one, and you've probably experienced it, but the argument was simply this. What makes you think you're right and everyone else wrong? And you can you know, fill in whatever blank that you want. What makes you think you're right and Mormons wrong? Aren't they good people? Don't they live good lives? Don't they contribute to society? Aren't they a good family influence? Don't they do good things in a positive way for society? Aren't they good? What makes you think you're right and they're wrong? Fill in the blank. I don't care who the group is outside that circle. You fill it in. What makes you think you're right and they're wrong? So he was talking with a couple of these guys. And uh, you know what? And that was the question that was asked. Well, what makes you think you're right and they're wrong? 
And another guy came walking over, man, he could feel it. You know, it's kind of like the wolves coming just to feast on this carcass. And the other guy said, yeah, what makes you think you're right and they're wrong? And so my friend turned and he looked at the one guy and said, well, let me ask you this. When you die, are you going to heaven? And he said, yeah, probably. I'll, yeah, I'm probably going to heaven. And he said, well, why are you going to heaven? He said, because I believe in God. He goes, oh, okay. He goes, uh, do you believe that the devil believes in God? He said, yeah, I believe the devil believes there's a God. Okay, well, let me ask you the next question because it's only logical. Do you think that the devil's going to heaven? The guy scratched his head. And he said, that's a good point. And it is a good point because, you see, in James it says that you do well to believe that God is one, but so do the demons and they shudder at the thought of who God is. Interesting, isn't it? So that's the question that we go through. You know, this open-minded philosophy, there's one big danger of being open-minded, and the greatest danger of them all is that your brains may fall out in, in the course of being open-minded. That's probably the greatest danger that I can see. So the last time we got together, we saw that there's an attitude that's called universalism, and that is simply this. If God is good and if he is loving, there's no way that a loving God could send anybody to hell for eternity. So all people will be saved regardless. So they've taken that and we've kind of updated a little bit because there's a problem with that because it denies many of the teachings of Scripture, particularly the teachings of Jesus Christ himself, who teaches that there's a hell, that teaches there's a narrow road, that teaches there's a broad road leading to destruction, that teaches that we should flee the coming wrath of God that's to come, that teaches those things. So what they do is they update it and say, okay, well, Jesus Christ did die for the sins of the world, and therefore everyone will be saved because of the death of Jesus Christ. Whether you believe him, whether you hear him, whether you know him, it doesn't really matter because he died for everyone. Then the argument is, well, then why go around telling people about Jesus? Why be commanded to do it if no one needs to hear it anyway and they're saved? Then that's kind of a useless uh, process that doesn't make any sense. So why should we tell people about Christ if everyone's going to be saved because he died for their sins regardless of whether they believe in him or not? So it doesn't really matter how you live. You might as well live like hell and do whatever you want selfishly to ever promote your own cause because it doesn't matter. You're saved anyway. That doesn't make any sense. So then there are those who are a little truer to Scripture and they say, ah, well, you know what, there's a wider hope kind of here. And that is that not all people will be saved, but those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His completed work on the cross, they'll be saved, but also included in that group will be those who are sincerely seeking the truth, that have never heard the name of Christ, have never heard the gospel, and if they're sincerely seeking the truth, then God will save them. That's the question of what happens to good people that never hear the gospel. And the answer is, well, let me ask you this. In what realm of life does sincerity save you? Let me give you an illustration. A couple weeks ago, I ran a marathon. First prize was 50000 bucks in a new Mercedes. I sincerely need $50,000. <laughs> and I could sincerely see myself driving a nice new Mercedes. I can sincerely see that. I can sincerely see that. And I can sincerely remember hearing somewhere about the 13th mile the results of who won the race. <laughs> now, I don't know why that is. I was as sincere as a heart attack that I could use 50,000 bucks. But I also knew that I never ran a five-minute mile in my life and that the winner would have to run 26 in a row. <laughs> now, I was sincere. I sincerely need $50,000. I was sincerely wrong, as it turned out almost five hours later, limping in, looking for an ambulance and an IV to hook up to. But I was sincere, man. I mean, I was as sincere as can be. There's a problem with sincerity. 
You jump out of an airplane sincerely believing you don't need a parachute, and if God intended you to need a parachute, he would have grew one on your back. You sincerely fall to the earth, and as you plummet, you sincerely realize that you've miscalculated. And the quicker the ground comes up, the quicker you realize that you hope you pass out before impact. But you're sincere that you're going to make it. And you're sincerely dead as we all come to your memorial service because there's nothing to look at anymore. In fact, they don't even have to bury you. You'll be implanted already. <laughs> but you can be sincere as can be. I sincerely believe if I, I drink a cup of hemlock that it's Coca-Cola and it'll be the best thing that I've ever tasted in my life. And I'll sincerely die. Where in life can sincerity save you? Sincerity can't save you in any arena of life. Why in the world do we believe that in religion, quote unquote, that sincerity is going to save us there as well? It can't save us in physics. It can't save us in medicine. It can't save us anywhere else in life. Sincerity just simply doesn't work. Some of the sincerest people I know are as wrong as can be. I sincerely want my marriage to work, and you do everything that you can so it doesn't work. How sincere are you? And the results will indicate whether or not that's true. Is sincerity enough to save people in the area of religion? And the answer is an overwhelming, it doesn't make any sense in any other area. Why in the world would it in that area? Sincerity just simply doesn't pay off. So the question comes, well, how can a person be right with God? If you can't sincerely be right and believe what you believe and be right, what can you do to be right with God? Get your Bibles? Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, probably the most memorized scripture in all of the Bible. And if you want, you can yell it out loud. Which, what do you think it is? John 3.16. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Nobody has a clue what it means. But we memorize it and we get little stars and stuff for it in the third grade for memorizing it. It's great. John 3.16. Let's read it. Not together. Let me do it. Although, it would be a way to get Tom's outburst out of the way right away. <laughs> Tom, why don't you read that for me? Thank you. And you're done for the day. All right. Let me ask you a question. There's two kind of people that are represented here, right? What are they? Okay, people, people of the world, I like all those answers. I mean, where in the world did you see that? <laughs> people in the world, okay, he loved the world, maybe. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever what? Believe. Believes who? In him should not perish, right? But what? Is there a contrast that's being laid out here? Yeah. All right, what is it? All right, there's those who are going to perish, those who are perishing, and those who are living. There are those who, how do you get from being a dead person to being alive? Remember the context that this is taught in, and that's the other thing that we don't really keep in focus here. But the context is Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, hey, how do you get to heaven? And he said, truly I say to you that unless a man is born again, he cannot get to heaven. Very narrow-minded. He cannot get to heaven. Why? Because Jesus recognized the condition of mankind that took place at the Garden of Eden, and that is that man is spiritually dead because of the sin of Adam. Man is dead spiritually, though we seem to be alive physically. So what Jesus said was that you can't get into God's kingdom physically because it's a spiritual kingdom. You must be born again. You must come alive spiritually to be able to enter into a place that has spiritual overtures. 
So what we're talking about is, he said, listen, you've got to be born again. So what he was saying was, if you're not born again, you're perishing. If you are born again, then you will live eternally. Now the question comes, how do you go from being dead to becoming alive? How do you become, quote, born again? It's one of the most overused statements of the last 20 years in Christendom. We hear it all the time. And we usually hear it out of context and in a, in a silly realm that I'm a born-again Christian. Well, that's wonderful. How in the world did you become a Christian without becoming born again? You cannot become a Christian unless you are born again. So why do you say you're a born-again Christian? It's redundant. You're either a Christian or you're not. You're either born again or you're not. So don't go on saying you're born again this or that. I have, I'm a born again athlete. Well, I'm a born again Catholic. I'm a born again Christian. I'm a born again Studebaker. I don't know what you know. What in the world does that mean anymore? It doesn't mean anything. So you're either a Christian or you're not. You're either a saint or you ain't. That's just the way it is. And so as you look at that, how do you go from being dead to becoming alive? What does it say? He who believes what? In Him. In who? In Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. That's what it says. We must believe on Him. We must believe in Him. See, this change of condition takes place going from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, and it occurs simp not simply through some type of an encounter with the Creator in, a, in His creation, or not simply through some type of internal conscious awareness of who God is, this conditional change takes place in only one way, and that is by believing in Him. In Him is Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. You follow this? Now, you've got to pay attention because this has serious implications to the original question. How does a person become right with God who has never heard the name of Jesus Christ? What about good people? What happens to them in the overall realm of eternity? So look at, ahead to John 14.6 for a second. John 14.6. This, this John 14.6 is an answer to a question that's already been raised. And the question starts in verse 1. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the, the way, and you know where I'm going. Now, this is what Thomas said. Thomas, I love him. He's wonderful. Because he asked a question that all of us would ask. He said, well, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going, and how do we know the way? How do we get there? Okay, what did he already say he's doing? He's going back to his father's house. He will prepare a place for us to dwell with him for all of eternity. He's made us a promise, another prophecy that will come true, that when we die, we will be with him, or he will come back and take us to be with him, and we will be with him forever. There's a future promise that I can't wait to see come to fruition. And then he says this, Thomas goes, but how do we know where you're going, and how are we going to get there? And he says to that question, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's that exclusive agency once again. If you remember the illustration of trying to buy a product outside of an exclusive agent, you will not be able to buy it. There's only one place that you'll be able to get the life that Jesus Christ has to offer, the spiritual life that he says is necessary to get to heaven, and that's through him. He is the exclusive agent. He holds all the authority and the right to be able to give to anyone he chooses that life who calls upon his name. So now you go back to John chapter 3 and look at verse 18 for a second. 
Because the argument then is, well, but that doesn't mean that he has to be known in order to give that life. Certainly he can save people that have never come to know him. If he has the authority to do that, why do you have to know him? He can give that life to whomever he chooses. Interesting argument. How does it wash when you look at Scripture? Look at verse 18. It says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe, what? Has been judged already. Is already dead. Is already perishing. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Interesting. What's he talking about? What he's saying is, you've already been judged if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ because you're already spiritually dead. Because you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you've never made the transition from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, therefore you are in the perishing group. You've not crossed over from death to life. Now the, the key to understanding this is in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 for an understanding of what it means to believe in the name of someone. See, it's no accident that in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, the authority by which one is sent or one is given authority is based upon one's name, one's identity, who that person is. And so when he says that we must believe in the name of Jesus Christ, it must be that we believe in the authority that Jesus Christ has, in the authority of his name and who he represents. So in Acts chapter 4, this all begins to make sense in verse 1. And it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there would be a resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are priestly, high priestly descent. Now listen to their question. He said, and when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? See what they're saying? It's a question of authority. By whose authority are you doing what you're doing? What is the name of the person who has sent you to do what you're doing? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all by the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, it is by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation, listen, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Do you follow the argument? There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus Christ is the authority by which salvation or eternal life has been offered to us through God the Father to His people here on earth. That is the only way that any of us will ever get to heaven. It's by the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. There is... Now see, now see how narrow-minded this gets? 
Well, what about all these people out here and all these other things doing all these good things that are trying to do things that will be good and pleasing to society and their families and the world in which they live? What about all them? Well, there's only one criteria that I see. Regardless of everything they're doing, whether good or bad, have they come to put their faith and trust in the only name under heaven that's been given by which a person can be saved? Do they believe upon the name of Jesus Christ? And then the question is, what Jesus Christ do they say they believe in? Because there are a lot of Jesus Christ that are out there that are nothing close to what the Bible teaches, that he is God in human flesh who died a sufficient death for the sin of this world and was raised three days later to prove that he was who he claimed to be. There's a lot of Jesuses out there, but he's the only Jesus that I see in this Bible. He's the one that we can put our faith on and rest assured that we will be saved because of his name. Let me give you an example of that. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. It has to do with understanding the name that has been of the one that is sent. See, they understand this. You know, all throughout the Old and New Testament, it's a clear understanding of what it means to be sent by someone's name or have authority in someone's name. Because if you remember in Exodus chapter 3, Moses wrestled with this problem when God said, hey, I want you to go and set my people free. I want you to go to Pharaoh. Look at Exodus 3 starting with verse 10. He says, therefore, come now, and I'll send you to Pharaoh. He's talking to Moses, and he says, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. <clears throat> but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I'll be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may, they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He said, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. You know what he said? So when they ask you, tell them, tell them who sent you. I am sent you. Jehovah God. John 8:58. Jesus said before Abraham existed, he said, I am. And you know what the Jews did? They picked up stones to kill him because he equated himself with the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah God. He said that I am he and he is me. I and the Father am one. You see, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. There is a very real problem here. And so as you go through it, when you name a person, it settles the issue. It also settles the ambiguity of his identity. That's why we need to get into a habit of making sure that we name Jesus Christ as the solution to the problem. Remember last week, John Aronson said, you know, I studied all the black cultures in Africa, and he said the most amazing thing to me is that every one of them, without exception, understood there was a problem. He said that there was a distancing between God and man, and there were a variety of stories of how God became distanced from man, but every one of them had one unique common thread throughout every story, and that was that they all knew that God was here and we are here, and somehow or another we're just not clicking, that there's a separation that occurs. He said they all know the problem. So what they don't know is the solution. So what he proposes that we do is we just let people know that Jesus Christ is the solution to the problem and that he is the bridge that bridges that gap between God and man. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We've got to go through him. If you want to picture him as a tunnel and there's a mountain before you and God is on the other side and we are on this side and we can't scale the mountain, it's too high. We can't go under the mountain, it's too deep. We can't go around it because it's too wide. The only way we're going to get 
to the other side is to go through the mountain and Jesus is the tunnel and we go through Jesus Christ to get to the other side where God is and we will reign with him forever according to what scripture teaches. That's what we need to understand as we present it to people because they know there's a problem. They don't know what the solution is. And the solution is very simple. The solution is Jesus Christ. That's why we can't be ambiguous when we give the Lord the credit. We can't be ambiguous when we say, God did this. We have to be very specific and tell people that it's Jesus and his name alone that guarantees salvation to anyone who calls upon his name. Because there's too many broad ways of destruction that are out in our world today, and there are none clearer than God's on this side and we are on this side and Jesus is in the tunnel, and you've got to go through him to get to God. Nothing clearer than that. We need to stop being ambiguous when it comes to sharing the solution with people around us. And that's how we do it. Now we're going to ask the question, and we'll get to this particular point. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10, because the question naturally is this. Okay, I understand, Chuck, what you're saying. That God is on one side and we are on the other side, and that the only way that you and I will ever get to God is if we go through the tunnel, and that is to believe and accept in Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says there's no other name other heaven by which men must be saved than Jesus. That's why at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. That's why Jesus Christ, when they say, what must we do to be saved? And the apostles responded, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's why Jesus is always mentioned very specifically. So now you're going to ask the question, and it's a very valid question. Well, what happens to people who are on this side of the mountain that have never heard about the tunnel? What does God do for them? It goes back to the question my son asked me. You're going to tell me they're going to spend eternity in hell just because they've never heard the gospel? They've never heard about the tunnel? That God would do that? Isn't he a loving God, and isn't he a just God? And how can he do that to people? Dad, I don't understand that. What does he do? Look at Acts chapter 10. I believe this passage answers very specifically that question. What happens to good people who are sincerely searching for the truth, who sincerely want to know God, who sincerely want to please them in their life? What will God do for them to ensure that he doesn't unjustly send them to an eternity separated from him? Look at this passage. This is a great passage. Chapter 10, it says, There was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man. Here we go. A devout man and one who feared God with all of his household. He gave many alms to the Jewish people and he prayed to God continually. Here is your good guy. Here's your good guy. Look what he did. He believes in God. I believe in God. I'll go to heaven. Really? He feared God. I'm afraid of God. I'm going to do the things that are right to the best of my knowledge of what is right and wrong. I want to please Him in everything that I do. Great. Hey, you know what? And I'm even going to teach it to my kids and my wife and my family and everybody around me. I'm going to make sure that my whole household does this. Hey, that's great. What else are you doing? I'm even tithing. I'm giving. I'm going to church. I'm giving my money to good causes. I'm doing all these good things. And he's even, I'm even praying for the Jewish people. And I'm praying all the time for everything I can think of. I'm a good guy. By every one of our definitions, this guy would be a good guy. Well, what happens to good guys? Do they really finish last? Does God care about good guys and good gals? Well, let's see. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come to him and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Hey, God's seen your prayers. He's heard what you had to say. He's seen your lifestyle. He's watching what you're doing. And you know what? And he took note of it. And he said, you know what? He said, and now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who is also called Peter. 
He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel was speaking to him and departed, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance upon him. And after he'd explained everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. Okay? God is preparing Cornelius for the message that he will send by the person of Peter. Okay? We don't have time. But in verses 9 through 22, guess what? God's preparing Peter to deliver the message that Cornelius wants, wants and needs to hear. All right? Let's pick it up now at verse 23. It says, And so he invited them, and now he's, he's finally come. Peter's arrived, and he's come to the house, and he invited them and gave him lodging. And on the next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day it entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them. Check this out. Cornelius was waiting for him, and he called together his friends and all his close relatives and friends to hear the message that, that Peter's going to bring. He doesn't have a clue what it is. He just knows that God's honored him and that God is going to send a messenger to him to tell him what God knows he needs to hear. Check this out. He was so excited, he invited his friends and his relatives in his neighborhood over and said, I don't know what this guy's going to say, but I'm as excited as can be. I can't wait to hear it, and I know you want to hear it. He says, and when it came about that Peter had entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. See, P Peter, Cornelius doesn't even know what's going on at this point. He's worshipping Peter. He doesn't know what's going on. And so Peter said, stand up. I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner to visit him. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. And so I asked for, what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and invite Simon, who has also caught Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And so I sent to you immediately and you have come, been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by his Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears God and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. You yourselves know that thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things that he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. And God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should be visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And you know what? And Cornelius and all who are with him that were good people who are living a life that was pleasing to God. God did not forget them and that he took a man who was at first hesitant to even share with him. He took Peter and said, you go and you tell them about Jesus Christ. Let me just answer the question because you want to cut through all the fluff with people that you're dealing with? All the so-called good people of the world that are doing things that you think are good enough to get them to heaven? Let me just tell you what will identify whether they are truly people that are pleasing to God. 
when you share that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, when you share that Jesus is that tunnel from this side of the mountain to the other side, their response will determine whether they are truly good people in the sight of God. If they receive Jesus Christ and put their faith and trust in His name alone for salvation, then they are people who are going to make the trip through the tunnel. If they do not and they reject that message, then they are no more good than anybody else in the world who is living to please themselves and in some way trying to please God by their own terms. It's only through Jesus Christ that salvation can come to any person. You see, that cuts through all of the rest of the hype. But I'm a good person, but I'm doing this, but I'm doing that. But let me just tell you something. If you're truly a good person who are seeking to please God, then you, you will anxiously hear what I have to share with you about Jesus Christ. Because He is the one who will get you to the presence of God. See, that's really the issue, folks. What does God do about good people that are seeking Him? Let me tell you very clearly what He does. He will send people into their life that will confront them with the truth of Jesus Christ. And they will have an opportunity at that time to either receive Him or reject Him as their Lord and Savior. God is a loving God. God is a just God. But God does not coerce anybody to, climb through that, to walk through that tunnel. God gives us free will. He gives us freedom of choice. And because He does that, then men will perish. But also because He does that, because He has provided a way to get to the other side of the mountain. He's not saying, I'm over here, try to get here any way you can. He's saying, hey, you can't get here. I'll cut you a tunnel. And that's Jesus Christ. If you come through that tunnel, I'll save you. And if you think you can climb over to get here, you will die in your sins. That's the choice. What does God do for good people? He confronts them with the truth of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any better than that. Let me close with an illustration. I want to interview our missionary couple. But the illustration is this. Suppose you and I are on the 10th floor of a convalescent hospital and we're the safety officers assigned to the 10th floor. We, having done our job well, realize that their architect planned for one fire escape on that particular floor. A fire breaks out. We now have many choices that we're confronted with. We know where the architect has planned the fire escape and it'll guarantee safety for all who travel down that escape. But we also wrestle with, because we've heard in the back of our mind or we remember a story of someone who fell out of a 10th story window, landed in a bush, and they were saved and they didn't die. So we can struggle with telling people to jump out of the 10th story window and hope that they land in a bush because we think that people have been saved in the past by doing that. That's an option. We also know that we can tie sheets together and hang them out the side of the building. If some 80-year-old strong enough, God bless him, he may make it to the bottom. But if he's not, he's going to drop. So the question I ask from a moral standpoint, which is the best possible route of safety that we, should, that we should share with those who are trapped in the fire? Should it not be the one that's guaranteed the most, that'll guarantee everyone who goes down it will be saved? Wouldn't the most moral thing to do would be to share the fire escape exit with those who are trapped in the fire and are, will, are, are, are in the process of being destroyed? Wouldn't that seem logical to you? Then why in the world would we suggest that there are any other possible means than the one that is so clearly guaranteed through Scripture that we must believe and put our faith and trust in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness? Why would we tell anybody to jump out a window and hope they land in a bush? Why would we tell anyone to, to, to tie sheets together and hope that they survive? If they're strong enough, they can do it. We know the guaranteed fire escape, and the Bible clearly teaches it's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's just start sharing with them what we know will be true. One man closes this way. He says this. I love this quote. He says, I may not be able to prove from Scripture that no one since Calvary has ever reached heaven without a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But neither can it be, neither can it be proved from Scripture that anyone has done so. If it were true that people could be saved in any other ways, and if it were good for people to know that, would not the Bible have told us so? 
since it does not give us this hope, the hope must either be false or it must be good for people not to know about it. In either event, it would be wrong for me to speculate and propagate such an idea because the Bible does not do so and if it proves a false hope, what damage it would have done. What a wonderful way to sum up what we're talking about. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's why we have a sense of urgency in sending missionaries around the world because I believe that it's God's way of taking people who have a knowledge of the fire escape, sending them into a world, a world that is seeking and searching the truth, a world of, quote, good people that are searching for a way to please God so we can confront them with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Their response will determine whether they truly are pleasing in the sight of God Either they accept Jesus Christ or if they reject Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, God in a loving way has presented that truth to them for them to be given a choice. And you can't ask God to be any more fair than that. What a great thing to be able to share with my son. That, hey, you know what? Those who are seeking the truth, God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of justice. And will not God do that which is right? Because our responsibility is to tell people that we know the guaranteed exit.